This is Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. I'm Shannon Powell. I'm Kim Snyder from Indivisible New Rochelle. And I'm Mark Clapper from Indivisible Westchester. And we're all here today to talk about disinformation. Now, IW, along with Indivisible New Rochelle and NYCD 16 Indivisible, we co-hosted a forum on disinformation. Kim, this was your baby. It was your idea. Why did you think it was important that we inform people about disinformation? And what is disinformation? So disinformation technically is false information deliberately and covertly spread, such as the planting of rumors or false information, in order to influence public opinion or obscure the truth. We were lucky to have two experts at the forum. Kim, tell us who they were. Well, one of the speakers was Renee DeResta, who works with New Knowledge. Actually, she's gone on since then to Stanford. But she was working for New Knowledge when they did a report for the Senate Intelligence Committee on Russian interference. And so she was one of our speakers. The other speaker was just is was Justin Hendricks, and Justin is the founder and director of New York City Media Lab. He's very informed and plugged in, both in terms of the social media world and also activism. He's a founder of March for the Truth. Mark, did you know much about disinformation? Um, I did. Obviously, I was as shocked as everybody else to understand the degree to which it was going on. Uh, what was interesting for me was when I started hearing about what had been done, I realized that I had actually seen several of the campaigns on my Facebook page back in 2016. You know, the Hillary is ill uh-huh. was one, and, and there was another individual, I put that in quotes because I don't think it was a real person, that was trolling some of the pages that uh, I was frequenting at the time, and sure enough, he was gone a couple of days after the inauguration. But at the time, so. did it strike you as something that was a threat to democracy? No. Why not? Um, it was, at the time, not really understanding where it was coming from. I just thought it was, you know, garden variety trolling, which is essentially somebody with an opposing point of view just coming into a group just to start an argument. Here's how Renee DeResta explains the disinformation threat. The idea that a very small number of people, be they Russian trolls, domestic ideologues, spammers, can construct narratives, push them out to hundreds of millions of people, uh, push them out to smaller numbers of people, but extremely well-targeted groups of people that are increasingly shaping our political conversations. And that is as we talk about democracy and threats to democracy, um, one of the main ones that's, that's facing us in the era of uh, of being online all the time. When I was first introduced to Renee DeResta's work, one of the things that was really striking was how she described the Russian disinformation operation. It was not a, you know, a person in his basement trolling away. It was actually a pretty sophisticated marketing operation that had employees that, that, that got salaries, that got paid, and this was coordinated. And that's probably how, how it got the level of uh, power that it had. So the 2020 election is heating up. What kind of disinformation is out there already? Well, we already saw a whole crop of disinformation come up around the first set of debates. So, you know, the biggest one was the attacks on Kamala Harris, right? The Kamala is not black. That had actually started a while back when she first, you know, actively got into the race where there actually were some attacks from the left that were attacking her record as a prosecutor in, in California. Um, and going after that. But right around the time of that first debate, there were some articles published by some noted right-wing agitators basically, you know, expounding on this theme that uh, she was not black, that, you know, her, her, one of her 
parents is Jamaican. Um, and literally that then starts to propagate through being retweeted, being amplified with hashtags being created, and it starts to ripple out into the community. Um, what further compounded that was actually what went on during the debate with her attack on Joe Biden and, and some of the you know, past history around segregationists and busing and things like that, which gave it further momentum, unfortunately, and uh, just continued it. And at a key moment, shortly following that attack during the debate, a number of very, very popular right-wing Twitter accounts, gee, magically retweeted the identical tweet that carried the key message that was in the original article that started all of this. And that's how it rippled out. And it's still continuing in various forms right now. Now, the good news is the fact that Donald Trump Jr., retweeted that actually made it into the New York Times. So that means that people are paying more attention and starting to talk about it because technically we're limited in what we can do. And and Justin speaks to that very much. Justin Hendricks who presented at the forum. Right. Yeah. Right. So yes. he speaks to like what well, how can we fight it technically between now and 2020? Not a whole lot we can do, but we can be more vigilant. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to see this get picked up more in the news. And also the incident with the JoeBiden.info website, and then it turns out same thing for Kamala Harris. What was the JoeBiden.info website if people aren't aware of what it, what it is? Okay, this is another type of disinformation, but this is uh, a false uh, website. A, they call it parody, but it's really a slander website. And um, some uh, Republican consulting firm, actually one that has been employed by Donald Trump's campaign manager in the past, um, bought up these uh, domains, these URLs, JoeBiden.info, KamalaHarris.info, and put up, you know, inflammatory, false content about them, and even went so far as to sell T-shirts from the Joe Biden one, because his site was up actually before. Joe Biden's site was up. So they've been planning this for quite a long time, mm -hmm. and uh, it got a lot of traction. This yeah. is something that, that actually Justin Hendricks spoke about at the forum. He says that basically people have the Kremlin playbook from 2016, and everyone is using it to their advantage. A lot of experts are keen to point out right now that domestic disinformation mm -hmm. and election interference is actually the, the much larger threat um, that people have learned uh, from what happened in 2016 or using those tactics. And one of the reasons is because they're so inexpensive and they're so easy uh, and they're so effective. Yes, they are certainly effective and they are inexpensive. Uh, another example that I wanted to mention because we're seeing this, in, it, it's very different in form, but Tulsi Gabbard is one of the candidates. And, you know, it's a fact that Tulsi Gabbard has been lauded by Breitbart um, Steve Bannon has met with her and has advocated with her. She's gone to Syria and met with Assad. And, you know, so there's a lot there that many involved Democrats look at and say, hey, this just doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, the night of the very first debate, and she was on the panel that night, um, there were some online polls that took place right after the debate. And gee, magically, Tulsi Gabbard won those. Oh, and who was running those polls? Okay. Well, they were, they were in pretty, you know, some of them were on legitimate online sites, but it was places like Drudge, mm -hmm. you know, that get the usual suspects. But Go Vote for Tulsi 
was something that was being promoted by a lot of these right-wing troll accounts, you know, and go vote for Tulsi, and they made a big deal. And, you know, as another example of the kind of ripple effect that's created, you have people that are just, say, new to the campaign, that are just starting to pay attention. We've had some of them in our Facebook group that have come on that page and go, gee, I really like the fact that Tulsi Gabbard is anti-war. What else do you know about her? So the information spreads quickly. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, Renee DeResta said. She says, you know, that it, it spreads out there to millions of people. I mean, in almost, you know, a flash, right? Well, she also talks about when disinformation, so when this cheaply made content crosses the chasm and becomes news. So I believe it was The Hill that reported that Tulsi Gabbard had won some of these polls. Now, a lot of us who are online a lot kind of tend to ignore online polls because they can be gamed really, really easily. Uh -huh. But, um, yeah, it's, it's when fake news becomes real news. And, and one of the things Justin talks about is it's going to be a real house of mirrors. Right. And so, you know, Mark mentioned questions about certain candidates on the Facebook page. And my suggestion would be that we start having more of these discussions in person. Mm -hmm. That social media is not always the best place to have political discourse and conversations and to, to hash out difficult topics. In fact, it's really one of the worst and is going to be even more so. Right, because the message that I got from the forum was, well, we all know the president doesn't care. I mean, this is all to his advantage. So, well, most of it, not all of it, but a good deal of it is to his advantage. As you said, he has surrogates from his campaign who have these websites, you know, that are the, the quote-unquote parody website, websites for Joe Biden. You know, our government, the people in charge aren't doing enough. Clearly, the tech companies aren't doing enough. Um, you know, here's more from Hendricks about the challenge before us. Reality is there aren't good rules. There aren't good rules right now. And uh, some of the entities that are set up to try to protect us from this sort of thing, the FCC, are essentially toothless. They're not doing their job. Uh, and it's unclear what the result will be. So you two are both really good at being able, at this point, to spot disinformation, or at least more equipped than you were in 2016 to see what's going on. But what do we need to do in order to get regular, everyday people up and running and give them t the tools to be able to spot this for what it is, to be able to see through the smoke and mirrors, as you right. call it? So, you know, the first thing is to recognize it. And, you know, some of the basic ways to recognize it are, you know, where is the story that's being shared coming from? Mm -hmm. Is it coming from the New York Times or is it coming from, you know, the right wing daily? Um, you know, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of, let's say, less than reputable publications that are often shared as sources for a lot of these things. That's number one. And Mark, can I just jump in there? How, what would you consider to be a reputable source? How would people even know what that is? Well, the, the easiest way is if it's something you've heard of before. <laughs> Um, you know, certainly there's plenty of content that comes from those places. I would suggest also if you see something and it's from a publication that uh, maybe you don't recognize, go to their site and see what's there. Mm -hmm. um, and if it looks like there's a lot of very extreme, you know, content there, maybe you don't want to share that. 
Um, another good way to do it is if you know you're a part of some of the Facebook groups like ours, the individual indivisible Westchester group. Go see what other people are saying and what they're talking about. Usually, you know, a lot of the members of our group are pretty savvy, um, and, and things tend to bubble up and, and get you know disputed pretty quickly if they're not not accurate. Right. So, so those are ways to start. Um, you know, there are several people that are online. I mean, this is a little more advanced, like Caroline Orr is a very good one, who call these things out pretty quickly. Um, Justin Hendricks does, and there's you know, a number of other academics like Renee Claire Wardle is one um, that are publishing these things regularly as they become aware of things. They'll call them out, they'll tweet them. And if I have to say what is encouraging to me is that it seems like the people are recognizing these things a lot faster mm -hmm. and calling them out quickly. And as Kim said, it's so, also making the news, so that's good. Right. Right. Yeah, the more awareness we can have over this, the more it it doesn't live well in the light of day once it's exposed. Right. That's that's the great hope. The sunshine right? is the best disinfectant. Exactly. Yes. Right. As always. And Kim, you have a website that you created to arm people with information. Tell us about that. Okay, that's um, disarmdisinfo.com. And it's a website that provides basic education on disinformation, learning how to spot it, and also um, sharing stories about disinformation as it unravels um, in the upcoming days and as months as we head into the election. So we'll be sh sharing stories about that and putting uh, materials out there into kind of the disinformation you know, incidents mm -hmm. uh, that we're seeing so that people can start to train themselves because things take different form. You know, we're hearing a lot about deep fake uh, video. We saw the thing of Nancy Pelosi looking drunk, although that was actually a shallow fake. It wasn't really a deep fake because it was just a slowed down, an altered video. But we're seeing more and more, and this technology changes. And so uh, the di disarmdisinfo.com website is going to be a place where we'll be posting and sharing information about that and encourage people to share that with each other. And if I had one piece of advice, I'd say think before you share something. And if something hits you in the gut and really pisses you off and inflames you, think even harder. All right, so I'm here with Renee Dressa, who headlined today's event. Renee, give us an overview. What do you think is the landscape looking at the 2020 election and the disinformation threats that we face? twofold. I think there's still going to be foreign interference, uh, as we saw in 2018 and 2016 and other elections that have happened in other countries since. But I think there's also the challenge of domestically produced um, malign content. And that's what I would call the sort of return to fake news, uh, where fake news before it became politicized was the idea that you could create absolutely fabricated stories and, and push them out to mass numbers of people. That is still legal. That's a form of free expression. Sometimes that's characterized as you know, satire if we we're being extraordinarily generous. Uh, and so the question becomes, what do we do about that type of content, which as we saw even just last week with that video of Nancy Pelosi, uh, travels quite far and fast. 
So is this, are, looking at 2020, do you think it's going to be worse than it was in 2016? Is it going to be, is it going to be, um, is it not going to be so bad because there more, there's more awareness? Um, what What is kind of your general feel? I think it's going to be different. Um, and what I mean by that is in, in 2016, just speaking on the foreign interference, um, the Russians made their own pages, they made their own accounts, they did work to create personas to get stories out into the world. I think what we'll see now is more of an infiltration model. Uh, we saw that there was a, you know, a strategy that they were executing to engage with activists very much on a one-on-one -on -one level, even via Facebook Messenger, uh, to support protest movements with resources, to ask real activists to amplify their content. And that is, I think, something that we're going to see more of because that doesn't require them to build out entire media ecosystems. That just requires them to find receptive people uh, and then to amplify sensational and aligned messages, um, which again is real content sometimes, talking about real grievances. The question becomes is, are they creating a false impression about either the degree of people who feel passionately about a particular issue or uh, increasing the prevalence of these really high tension issues uh, to a degree that they actually wouldn't be in our society. That seems to me like it might actually be more complicated to fight. It's a lot more complicated to fight. And that's where I think that the challenge that we have is the easy days of finding you know, automated Twitter bots that were registered to Russian Beeline phones, even though they said that they were American news sites, that kind of sloppiness isn't gonna, it's not gonna exist anymore. And so we have to get a little bit better at just understanding patterns of dissemination, understanding what it looks like for content uh, to spread organically versus for content to be artificially amplified or to take advantage of uh, algorithms on particular platforms. So looking not at the, content itself, meaning not at the narrative, but at how the narrative is spreading to try to get an understanding of uh, where we can perhaps slow it down. So what that, that, that leads me to the next question is what can we as activists do to actively slow this process down? It seems like it's really up to us at this point. I think some of it is just um, recognizing that people are inclined to share content that makes them feel a certain way or that they agree with. I remember um, the, you know, uh, friend of mine who is a Republican was sharing a video of a uh, Trump supporter being attacked. Turned out that didn't really happen. Uh, we see again on the, you see this sort of thing happen on the other side too with Covington Catholic, that video of the, uh, the um, Kentucky teenager in the MAGA hat and the Native American drummer that went viral uh, long before anybody saw the extended cut of all of the different things that happened in that situation that day. So these tiny, short, highly edited polarizing clips spread extraordinarily quickly and people share them because they feel like a shared sense of outrage. Um, that response is natural and it's just a response to a way that you feel, but um, trying to rein that in and, and you know take the extra second to fact check it or uh, see if anybody's um, debunked it already, I think is a, a big piece of, of where we need to be going just in terms of our own individual contributions. So we need to be more self-aware. We need to try and reach out, I would think, and make our friends and people and our at least our social networks to be more aware. What do we need to demand of, say, our electeds or even our tech companies? 
Well, the tech companies have to be, you know, there, there needs to be accountability, recognizing that it is their platforms that are being misused. And while they're, of course, not soliciting the misuse, they're the only ones who can possibly do anything about it at this point. Um, so really requiring them to have that accountability. When content comes down, to have a transparency about the rules that went into that process um, and you know, to allow an appeals process for people who feel that they were unfairly taken down. Uh, and then from the elected officials, creating accountability models for tech that have teeth. So just asking them to self-regulate is not enough. It's important because they're going to be the first line of defense. They're going to be the ones that have to respond to new and emerging tactics. You can't legislate away or legislate protections for each individual disinformation tactic that comes down the pike. Uh, you know, regulation is inherently reactive. Uh, but what can we do to create obligations for the platforms to continue to improve oversight in their gardens? Thank you so much. No problem. Enjoy. So what's up with 2020? So be a smart consumer of media. Understand what you're reading, understand who it's coming from and what they are really trying to get you to do. So thumbs up. So thumbs up for me is the fact that there are a lot of very, very smart people who are focusing on trying to identify these uh, disinformation attempts as they happen and call them out and get the word out quickly. And thumbs up for me is that people are talking about it more openly and in the media. And the more we give it a name, the better we'll do. We have a thumbs up, but we also have to have a thumbs down. What's the thumbs down? That the President of the United States was encouraging his followers to, to go get him at the start of the Democratic debates. And how so? That he was on Twitter encouraging his followers to go have at him. Go have at the candidates? Yeah, go have at it. Go have fun. Go make a mess out there. And that's where you get things like the Kamala Harris isn't really black narrative. Right, and just building on, building on that, the thumbs down for me is that this is going to be taken to a place where a lot of very traditional, quote-unquote, campaign tactics like rapid response are going to be turned into, oh, that's disinformation. You're encouraging your people to try and spread disinformation. So it becomes a bit of a catch-22, which we have to be very careful about. This has been Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. Catch us online at www.indivisiblewestchester.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure you keep on resisting.